0: You are listening to Episode 19 in the podcast series Advocacy, Preparation and Performance. This episode is entitled Bad Things Happen So You Need to Be Prepared. Because much of this podcast content is a little depressing, listeners should please bear in mind that There are many good police officers, lawyers, and judges. It's just that the bad ones hide among them, though usually in plain sight. As a new advocate, you need to be prepared to deal with the following problems. First, your lack of experience, for which nothing but experience Is the cure. And while you're looking for that experience, do take the trouble to have one or even two trusted mentors who will give you advice when you come across an unexpected and difficult problem for which your experience provides an inadequate guide. Next, if you're doing criminal work, whether it's a prosecutor or as a defense, then it is inevitable that from time to time you will come across bad police investigative work caused by plain incompetence or tunnel vision and occasionally by corruption that's born of either internal to the police or external forces or both. Some of the tools for dealing with bad policing include checking out the prosecution disclosure policies and ensuring that the police and the prosecuting authorities have complied, and then gaining access, by whatever means you have, to police log records, to full witness statements, and also you're taking the time to prepare careful timelines based on all the information that you have been able to collect. Good timelines are always a very valuable tool to uncover bad acts. Having recognised what follows from your own lack of experience and also for criminal law practitioners the obstacles posed by bad policing, now let's look at the third group. It is inevitable you will come across opponents, people in our own profession, who, amongst other faults, will bully and lie, pre-trial, at the bar table, during adjournments, and between the end of the hearing and the handing down of the decision. Among the methods that such people will use are feigned superiority as to advocacy skills and legal knowledge that is superiority to you they will use bluff they will use sledging at the bar table sledging means that they'll make comments that you will hear but the judge won't those comments will be designed to put you off your game other things that they might try include improper approaches to any and all of witnesses, court staff, and even judicial officers. But that's not all they will do. They will also try to force your client to give up by building up legal costs so your client can't afford to stay in the fight. This is a particularly easy technique to follow if a party is well-funded, for example, if it's corporate or government-funded. The fourth source of problem to you in running litigation are the media. Just that part of the media that is biased, or incompetent, or both. Here are some examples. Take, for example, those media that rely on police media statements and don't do any work to check on the information in those statements. They like to be first to have access to the statements, and in return for being a priority recipient, some of them are prepared to do the dirty work for police who are acting improperly. Another example of occasional media problems are those who have an agenda, either their own or that of the owners of their publication. It may be party political, it may be a particular slant on an aspect of political correctness, it may even be loyalty to one side, uh, as when they are reporting on a case where somebody has taken defamation action against a media outlet. Most likely, though, the problem that you encounter are media who don't check the information that they're given and rely or assume its accuracy when it's anything but. And Then very, very occasionally you'll run across those media who quite literally make it up as they go along. Naturally, as somebody dealing with the media, you will make it very clear that you cannot be quoted at all until you have seen what they propose to say or write. And if necessary, you'll record that undertaking that they give you in case they break it. The fifth and final group that will concern all of us as legal practitioners and advocates are those judicial officers, fortunately a minority, for whom their oath of office means little or nothing. You'll recognise these people by any of the following indicators. First, those who are lazy and work-shy, who come onto the bench having done nothing to prepare for the hearing for which they've been paid. Then there are those who are appointed not on merit, but because of their political connections. An example with which many listeners will be familiar is when a political party that's been in government sees that the omens of the next election are not good, and then a number of people who've been working in politicians' offices are offered lucrative jobs on tribunals and the like, for which there is no accountability whatsoever. Then there are those who, whatever they may have been when they were appointed to office, become arrogant and abusers of the power which is vested in them. Apart from those people, there are very, very few who are corrupt generally or who are corrupted on particular occasions where, through any of bribes or the promise of preferment or the need to seek reappointment, they put aside their judicial oath and reach a decision which is indefensible. Amongst those who are corrupted, far and away the most dangerous are those very few who are highly competent and very experienced. That competency and experience equips them to be corrupt in particular cases where that corruption brings them particular benefits. Really difficult in such cases. This is that their general reputation acts as a very effective barrier to any suggestion that in any particular case or series of cases, they have behaved at less than the usual standards expected of them and delivered by them. I turn now to some examples of bad behaviour by Judicial Officers. Let's start with some samples of an abuse of power. Here are some quite common ones. The prescription of timetables in the preparation of a case that are either way too short or way too long. In either case, to the detriment of one or both parties. A second one are those judicial officers who seem to think that a case having been heard, there is simply no deadline by which they ought properly to deliver their decision. For example, those who go over three or four months, save in exceptional circumstances, ought to be more accountable than they are. Within the courtroom, there are some who, by dint of the power reposed in their office, enjoy putting down lawyers in front of the client or clients. During the hearing, they ask too many questions of witnesses, which nearly always suggests a partisanship towards one party rather than another. Other examples are those who too readily close the court to the public and thereby make themselves unaccountable, and those who too generously issue suppression orders to stop the public reporting of the cases that have been heard in front of them. Another one, one that is almost impossible to deal with, is the misuse of the very broad judicial discretion when making cost orders. Two more to bear in mind are those judges who make comments from the bench that clearly represent some common prejudice and designed to draw some reaction, often unstated, from the audience that is at the expense of one or other party in front of them. Finally, and very dangerously, is when judges make comments during a hearing that are calculated to mislead at least one party as to what is or are significant issues to come in the later decision. To give you an example, a judge may make a comment whilst there is an examination or cross-examination of a witness that seems to indicate unequivocally that something that was thought to be an issue in the case isn't one. As a result of that, the other party that was going to do more work on that issue decides that it doesn't need to. What can then happen is, at the decision stage, it suddenly finds that it was wrong in its um, assessment of what the judge meant And there is nothing, but nothing can then be done to correct what has happened. So what can the advocate do when faced with the judge for whom the oath means nothing or little? Above all else, the advocate must be sure to create a record in the recording and or the transcript produced from that record that shows a timely calling out of the offending behaviour at the time when it happens. Most listeners will know that if you don't take a point during the hearing, it's very difficult to persuade an appeal court that they should look at it thereafter. The argument, as was mentioned earlier in this series, is is that counsel are assumed to be competent, and if they didn't take um, any action at the time something happened, it was for a good reason, and it cannot be taken after the event. Here are some of the comments that you may need to make. Of course, don't use these words verbatim. Whatever you say should reflect the particular environment in which you're appearing and your own personality. Bearing that in mind, some of the things that you may have need for from time to time as follows. Your Honour, with so many questions coming from you, some might think that you're descending into the arena of this litigation. Then, Your Honour, with the greatest respect, the reasonable bystander will have an apprehension of bias in the light of what Your Honour has just said or done. Then, your Honour, this is at a jury trial during the summing up by the, uh, the judge to the jury, and naturally, in the absence of the jury, that is, you ask for them to be sent out before you say as follows. Your Honour, I note, as has my colleague, that during your summing up to the jury, you have on a specified number of occasions, emphasised by your pausing or your gestures or your tone, whichever is applicable, that you think, whatever it might be, with respect to a witness or evidence, or both, is false or not credible or unbelievable, whatever that might be. That, with respect to your honour, is not your function, and I must ask you to make a point of telling the jury that they must disregard Anything they thought they might have inferred from your orders. Body language, tone, volume, or whatever else. It's important to remember that you can never anticipate when you're going to encounter a bad act by someone with whom you interact during litigation. When you do encounter such conduct, the first thing you must think about is, from whom can I get some independent, credible and objective advice on what I should do? If that means asking for a shorter German so that you can obtain that advice, do not hesitate to ask for it. And to be quite candid in saying, your honour, a matter has arisen, for which I need to take some independent advice. I'd ask for a short adjournment while I do that. That brings to an end this 19th episode in advocacy in court preparation and performance. I hope that you've found those bits with which you've engaged useful and that you've encouraged other people who, who also were at the start of their advocacy career to tip in and out of this series to help them Learn the basics as they go into court. By all means, as your experience progresses, drop me an email if there's a topic that you'd like me to focus more on or if there's a different approach to some topic that you think that I should share with people who might take some part or parts of this podcast series in the future. Thank you for your part in making this journey worthwhile.